Father God, thank you that you are eternal and your love lasts forever. Thank you for your amazing word through which you've revealed yourself to us and your hope of salvation. And now, Lord, as we listen to your precious and holy word, we pray that you'd help us to concentrate and to listen and to honour you. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Phil. It was 6.30pm. I was sitting alone in a motel room in Murapara. Most of you got no idea where that is, I imagine. Murapara is a little forestry village or town in the southeastern corner of the Kaingara Forest, sitting between the forest and the Uruweras. I was sitting there all by myself, relaxing, after working all day at the local police station. I was there relieving both of the constables who worked there normally because they were both away on time off. And when you get time off down there, you leave town, otherwise you don't get time off. So I was by myself. The phone rang. The woman's voice on the phone was hysterical. She was screaming. And I was trying to get her to calm down and make some sense out of what she was saying. And eventually I picked up the words, he's trying to kill me. And I thought, oh, it's not that bad. Settle down and tell me what's going on. Next thing I heard, a rifle shot come through the phone. I thought, my goodness, maybe she's right. By the time I got her address out of her, I'd heard three rifle shots come through the phone. So I didn't know whether she was alive or dead now. I knew the local policemen weren't there. I knew that the armed defender squad was probably two hours away. I knew that I couldn't wait for them. So I had to go down there and sort that issue out all by myself, which I did. Another night sitting in the same motel, got another phone call and the woman wasn't quite so hysterical but she did say that there'd been a party, there'd been a fight at the party, one of the guys had left the party saying he was going home to get his 308 and he was going to come back and sort the party out, you better get down here. And the good thing about Mirapara is that if you know the address where the party is, and you know his address, you know how he's going to travel between the two places because there are not many options. So I went down there and waited around and there he is coming down the road. So I pulled him over and had a look in the back seat and there's the 308 all loaded up ready to go. Who knows what carnage we saved that night. The elders gave me this text, which is up there, along with the heading which is up there, does drinking have consequences? And I thought the simple answer to that is yes, of course it does. Because both of those guys had been drinking. Went the first one and spent the day in the hotel trying to drown his sorrows over his broken relationship. And when he got kicked out of the hotel, he decided to go back to where his woman was and try and sort it out. And when that didn't work, he tried another way. The three shots that I'd heard fired had gone through the ranch slider 
through the next wall, across the hallway, through the next wall, and where they went after that, I don't know. But where the three shots went through the wall into the passageway, the woman had her kids sitting on the floor and the bullets were going over their head. I was a police officer for a long time. Well, 18 years, which I suppose is a long time. And I saw a lot of that sort of stuff. And I know drinking has consequences. But have a little look at some history. There have been headlines in the local paper several times lately about drug and alcohol addiction problems and an initiative aimed at 12 to 19-year-olds right here in Hamilton. 12 to 19-year-olds. These are not people who are starting to drink. These are kids who have drug and alcohol addiction problems, 12 years old. Does drinking have consequences? You've probably heard of the one picked up in the skate bowl just around the corner from here a few weeks ago. Nine years old, drunk off his face. And what came out of that was that was not a one-off for him, that was how he lived his life. But does it affect us here in the church? Back in the early days of our marriage in Rotorua, I remember being called in to a prayer meeting. We had a bunch of really serious prayer meetings down there about a young fellow whose life was hanging in the balance after a car crash. He'd been drinking and gone out in the car and wrecked his car and almost killed himself and everybody else in the car with him. He belonged to our sister assembly. the son of a family who, 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 who worshipped in the other assembly in Rotorua. See, just because we're in the church doesn't mean that we are immune from these things. Not at all. So let's see what we can learn. An elder called me up a couple of weeks ago and he said um, that they were trying to arrange an appropriate testimony for today. Did I know someone? And I said, yeah, me. Judging from his reaction, I don't think that was the answer he was expecting. Point is, we all have history. We all have history. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. So what do we do about bad history? We have two choices. We can continually dwell on it. We can live in the past and let it ruin our present and our future. And I know Christians who've done that for decades. Or we can do what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
How did he do that? By forgetting those things which are behind. We can't change the past. And if we live in the past, it'll change the future. We can confess it and we can move on. We can stop it from spoiling our present and our future. Why let what happened years ago ruin today and tomorrow? That's just dumb. So why do these things happen to Christians and Christian families? Simply because we're in a spiritual battle. And I think in New Zealand we tend to forget that because it's so easy here. We've got two natures within us, whether we like it or not, and that's why we struggle. And that's why some of our past isn't that flash. You know, even the Apostle Paul struggled with it. He said in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, he knows what is the right thing to do. He wants to do the right thing, but he always seems to manage to mess it up somehow. Does that sound familiar in your life? I'm so glad that verse is in there because it means there's hope for me. If it's hard enough to live the Christian life with a good, clean testimony when you're sober, why make it harder by following the world into the, into the ways of drinking? Why? It's called making a rod for your own back. I used to go to Sunday school. Now, Sunday school is a bit different from this one, I hope. Well, it is. Because the Sunday school I used to go to in the early days was on Sunday, but it was at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was when we came off night shift. We'd been working night shift all week. So after, after night shift Saturday night, we'd get together and have a few drinks before we went home. Six o'clock in the morning. It probably sounds a bit strange to you, but it was after work for us. We lived out at Nongataha, which is out on the northern fringes, northern edge of the lake. It's about eight k's from the city centre where the police station was. I remember going to bed one Sunday morning after Sunday school, and I was thinking about the drive home. On the way home, there's an intersection called Coty Corner. It's the main intersection coming out of town, coming north. probably know it. It's where every road seems to meet up at Coty Corner. Very busy intersection. And I was thinking about the ride home, and I could not remember coming through Coty Corner. I went to bed that night thinking, you fool, you could have killed somebody. Have a look at a few statistics. We've already mentioned the 12 to 19-year-old addicts. One time in Rotorua we had to deal with a petrol sniffer 
who had already fried his brain from pet sniffing petrol, which is a little bit harsher than alcohol. He was four. Four years old. I got picked up at a booze checkpoint the other day, oh, several weeks ago now, several months ago. I passed the test. But I said to the officer, why have you got a checkpoint in the middle of town at 8.30 in the morning? I'm going to work. I've been asleep all night. He said, mate, you would be surprised how many young mums we pick up here at 8.30 in the morning taking their kids to school when they fail this test. We have a new phenomenon called child poverty. We used to call it child neglect. In this country, at least, child poverty comes about because the parents spend all their money on the booze, alcohol and cigarettes and they then haven't got any left over to buy food for their kids. That's how child poverty works in this country. Let's have a look at some background. As a police officer for many years, I can tell you that the vast majority of people we dealt with were intoxicated, the vast majority. Because at the end of the day, a policeman's job is to do that which no one else wants to do. I could tell you stories for hours that would make you cringe, but it's all right, I'm not going to. I'll just tell you a few. We had a friend called Graham Harvey in Rotorua. He was an ambulance driver and he went to our church Sometime in the 70s, he was seconded to Auckland to go work up there for a while. And during the time that he was up there, the breweries went on strike and there was no booze and all the, all the um, there literally was the pub with no beer up there, all of them, for a while. And when he came back, I asked him how, how it went and how did the brewery strike affect him. And he says, man, we were bored out of our brains. We had nothing to do until the breweries came back on. The simple fact is that much that this country and much of the world runs on alcohol. And always has apparently, because Noah had the same problem. We'll get into that in a minute. If you take alcohol out of the equation, we'd only need a fraction of the police we've got fraction of the lawyers we've got, fraction of the ambulance staff we've got, and hardly any courts. At the moment, they can't cope. I reckon from my experience that if alcohol was out of the equation, crime would go down by about 80%. 80%. If you want to check that out, you watch Police 10-7 or one of these other programs that's on TV every other night. And you just take notice how many people they have to deal with who are not quite with it. I watched the first two dealings on Police 107 the other night, and both the guys they pulled up were just completely gone. And that's how it is. So, what happened to Noah? Our text is in Genesis chapter 9. 
starting at verse 18, and it says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. Notice he didn't use his name Ham. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The sons of Noah went out of the ark. Before they went out of the ark, they had to go into the ark. And the reason they went into the ark was because of Noah, their father. The boys were 100 years old when they went into the ark. I don't know how long it took to build that ark, but looking at the model that Ross had here and, look, and thinking about the way they would have to do it, cut down, they must have cut down hundreds of trees and they didn't have chainsaws. Noah was probably building that ark most of the boy's life. And all the while, the people would have been asking him what he was doing. I'm building an ark. What's an ark? Big box. What are you building that for? God's going to send the rain, flood the earth. What's rain? They didn't know. He'd been preaching the message for years. And the boys had obviously believed him and accepted his message because God included them in his plan of salvation. You know, if the boys were bad, he could have blotted them out too and started again because... Noah lived for 350 years after the flood, but it seems that he didn't have any more kids, just those three. We read in verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. And that sort of genealogy summary of other people, it says that after the person they're talking about, he lived another 100 years and had other sons and daughters doesn't say that about Noah. So I'm figuring that he only had these three boys. And it says there that the whole world's population came from those three boys. Now, they believe God because of their father's testimony and the result is that the world's population can be traced back to three men. Here's the question. See, Noah had a great testimony amongst his three boys, dads, How's your testimony with your kids? Mine wasn't flesh. How's your testimony before your kids? It's really, really important. In verse 21, we look at Noah. 
He was only he was one of only two people of whom the scripture says he walked with God. That that's quite amazing when you think about it. You think about people like Abraham and Elijah and Elisha and Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul. Only two people, it says, he walked with God. One was Noah and the other was Enoch, his great-great-grandfather. Enoch disappeared about the time Noah was born. You know Enoch didn't die, don't you? He just disappeared. That would have been interesting. Where's, where's Dad? I don't know. He just disappeared. But Enoch walked with God, and in Genesis 5.24 it says, And he was not, for God took him. And that's about when Noah was born. Uh, but then when we come to this chapter, chapter 9, we see that Noah got drunk. And that's when he didn't care. His inhibitions were gone. And that's what happens when you get drunk. Or you don't have to get drunk, just a bit intoxicated. I can remember back in the old days when I was driving the crime car, which is a is me driving this thing in a detective, and our job is to dress up rough and hang out in the pubs and places and see what's going on in town. And it's difficult to do that if you don't have a drink or two. And so I did. And I got to the point where I felt I really shouldn't be driving this patrol car. So I reached in the glove box and got out a box of testing tubes and I breath tested myself. Now these, in the old days you had a tube about that long and had all these green tubes in it, these little green crystals in it, and you blew through it and if there was alcohol in your breath, crystals would change yellow, there's a line halfway along and if it went past there, then you were required to go back for another check because it was a good chance you were over limit. So I blew in this thing, didn't even go halfway, up to the mark. But I seriously felt like I shouldn't be driving. Alcohol does that to you. You don't have to be drunk. So there's Noah, crashed out in his tent. He's the one who walked with God. Now he's blind drunk. What's he done to his testimony? It only takes one slip, people. Only one. Ham thought it was funny in verse 22. The way I read that, it looks to me like Ham made a joke out of it. Hey, boys, come and look what this is. Come and have a look. He, was, he showed gross disrespect to his father. And he paid a big price. He paid a big price. Then there was Shem and Japheth in verse 23. <clears throat> they took it seriously. They showed their dad some respect and they went and covered him up. Respect is a big deal. I believe one of the greatest problems in the world today is the lack of respect. People don't respect people. People don't respect animals. People don't respect the environment. People don't respect anything. In verse 25, we read that Ham was cursed for his attitude. In verse 26 and 27, the two boys were blessed. Shem and Japheth, they were blessed. And they were blessed at Ham's expense. Because later down the line, when the Israelites, the descendants of Shem, came into the promised land and kicked the inhabitants out, who were they? They were the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites. 
So that, let's look at some consequences of alcohol. Firstly, there's physical. Physical. We look at sickness, brings in a lot of sickness. Short-term sickness with alcohol, otherwise known as hangovers, causes all sorts of problems in workplace and stuff. Then there's long-term sicknesses. We look at liver disease and all sorts of associated illnesses to do with consumption of alcohol. I used to have a lot of trouble with migraines, nothing to do with alcohol, they were just migraines. And it resulted in me taking a day or two of work off, off now and again, day or two off work every now and again. Senior officer of the police bailed me up one day and he says, Graham, if I didn't know you belonged to the Brethren Church, I'd think you was an alcoholic because that's what alcohol does. It affects your work, it affects everything. Creates a lot of incidences. Alcohol is, a, as I said, almost, is a contributor in almost everything that a police officer has to deal with, almost everything. Motor vehicle crashes, domestics, assaults, robberies, burglaries, almost all of them are fueled by alcohol. Frontline cops will tell you that alcohol is behind almost every road crash in the country, serious ones. And the reason is simple. It's not that they're drunk usually, it's just that they've had enough to boost up their self-confidence and lower their ability, and that's a bad combination. They end up doing things they wouldn't normally do, and somebody pays the price. It impairs judgment in whatever we're doing, not just driving, judgment in whatever we're doing causes a lot of death. So many people die needlessly every year because somebody drank. We have them falling out of boats and drowning. We have them drowning in the swimming pools. We have motor vehicle crashes all over the place. People do have a few drinks, do something stupid, someone gets hurt or killed. Then there's the emotional side of it all. Causes all kinds of regrets. You wake up the next morning and remember what you've done the night before because you were a bit fueled up and, well, it's not good. I saw that constantly. Some of you might be thinking, well, if you drink in moderation, that's all right. Yeah, maybe it is. Just remember. Your kids are watching you drink in moderation. The only problem is they haven't learnt moderation yet. So they go out and get into it too. And before you know it, something's happened and he's in trouble or dead. It's pretty serious, really. It causes all kinds of stress in relations, relationships over financial pressures because it just makes the financial pressures worse. It causes all kinds of relationship problems. I remember one Christmas morning, now Christmas in the police, we only work four hours, twice as many shifts on, working half as much time. So we only work four hours. One Christmas morning, I went to five domestics. Merry Christmas, everybody. Five domestics. Because they've been drinking all the night before. I went to one party once on a Sunday or Monday and 
all these drunken people were just sitting around there with the glazed look in their eyes hanging onto the glass. And I said to one of them, when did the party start? And he says, three days ago. It affects our spiritual life. In Genesis chapter 6, Noah was described as one who has walked with God. And imagine being the only family that survived a worldwide catastrophe. That's what happened to Noah. He was the only family that survived a worldwide catastrophe. That's pretty big. Next thing we read, he's crashed out in his tent drunk. God was obviously impressed with Noah in chapter 6. Was he impressed with Noah in chapter 9? Was God impressed with me at Sunday school back in the old days? Was he impressed with you when that happened? When I was studying this text, I came up with a new title. And it's that. <clears throat> you are being watched. So who's watching? It's not the GCSB. No need to worry about them. The kids are watching. We've got a little granddaughter that we see every day. <clears throat> She's um, 16 months old. I got it right. She's only been walking a few weeks, but she's into everything. You put her down in the lounge, she'll head straight to the coffee table, she'll pick up the remote, she'll point at the TV and start pushing all the buttons. You give her your phone, she knows which button to turn it on, she knows how to swipe it to get it going. You show her some pictures, she knows how to flick the pictures around, look at all the different pictures, she's 16 months old. You give her the tablet, she gets the touch, she looks at all the icons and she knows if she touches a button something will happen or if she flicks that one across something else will happen. She learned that by watching us do it. There was a four-year-old in South Auckland a few years ago and he was banned from the local dairy because of his foul mouth, four years old. His parents said in the newspaper, well, we don't know where he learned to talk like that. I do. He learned that at home. The kids are watching everything you do. And they will mirror you. There's a verse in Matthew 18.6 that talks about what would be better for you if you offended or upset these little kids. And it says it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your feet and you were chucked in the sea. It's pretty serious. And yes, your friends are watching. I had a friend. Oh, he's still a friend. His name is Steve. He's in Rotorua. Used to go hunting with him a lot. Him and I and another friend called Ken, who was a Christian, were all members of the Deerstalkers Association. I'd be out in the bush with Steve and I'd try to share my faith with him because I was concerned about him. And he'd just say to me, Graham, if Ken's a Christian, I don't want to be one. 
That's all very well, but it's going to be no excuse when he gets to stand before the great white throne and he hears those awful words, depart from me for I never knew you, because that's what he's going to hear. But between now and then, it's a huge stumbling block. How many people are out there saying, if Graham's a Christian, I don't want to be one. If you're a Christian, how I don't want to be one. Friends are watching. Your workmates are watching. <clears throat> I worked with a guy called Tony. He lived in Tauranga. We worked in Motorua. He came to me one early one week and he said, I went home for the weekend. I said, oh, you? Yeah. He said, I went to the, um, the youth group at the Greaton Bible Chapel. Said, oh, all right. He said, I met Russell Moore there. All oh, right. Said, he told me he's your uncle. I said, yeah, that's right. Said, he told me you're a Christian. He said, I said, yeah, that's right. His face screwed up into utter contempt and he said, you two-faced and the rest is unrepeatable. Your workmates are watching. So how's your testimony at work? I do have a better one. 92, I think it was. I spent the year driving the milk tankers out at Tirapa. And... You work pretty much on your own out there driving those things. But I came into the smoker room after one load and there was half a dozen guys in there and um, they were sitting around telling jokes. Probably should have been back on the trucks by now. But... And one of them started to tell a joke about a, a religious joke and he stopped as he got started and he looked at me and he said, Graham, I know you're a church person, I'm not getting at you. Please don't be offended, this is just a joke. And I know I was sort of sitting there thinking, how did you know I was a Christian? I never told anyone here yet. I've only just started here. See, your workmates are watching, and they know. And furthermore, they've got higher expectations of us than we seem to have. So who else is watching? Well, Satan is. He's known as the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12 and 10, it says, Now for salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The accuser of the brethren. I, I, I got this picture in my mind of Satan running around, checking out what we're doing and running back to God, little tittle-tattle. You know, look at him, look what he's doing. You know, look, look, God, look what she said. You know, what are you going to do about it? And Satan's on the ball all the time. Watching. Who else is watching? Well, the angels are watching. It says in Luke 15, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just people who don't need to repent. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I think this. If the angels can see the conversion of the sinner and rejoice, why wouldn't they see and mourn at the backsliding of a Christian? So the angels are watching. Who else is watching? God is watching. And not from a distance like that song says, you know, he is watching from a distance. No, 
He's right here. Ephesians 4.25, it says, Therefore put away lying. Each one of you speak truth. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How many times a day do I grieve the Holy Spirit? So let's look at the summary. The world is bad. We know that. But we're in the church. These things don't happen here in the church, do they? Remember the, one of the first stories I told you about the young fellow who got intoxicated and nearly killed himself in a car crash? He was in the church. The elders of our church called me in once to seek my professional help in sorting out one of the guys in our church who had some serious hang-ups over a, a young married woman in our church which was resulting in some really bad behaviour. He was in church. There was a guy down there called Nevin. He went, we had a vow, some kind of crusade there one time. Not sure, I presume it was the evangelistic one. And the preacher gave an invitation near the end. Nevin went forward. Preacher said to him, why have you come forward, young man? He said, I've come forward to dedicate myself to the Lord's work. Music to a preacher's ears. Everyone was happy. He married a good friend of ours in that church. I even took the wedding. Within two years, she found out that he'd been leading a double life all along, that he was in fact gay, and he left. Turns out that he, he had no money. He had he hatched this plan, if I marry her, stay with her for two years, I can divorce her and take half of what she's got. That's all he married her for. He was in the church. Fraud. A number of Christian people from the, from the Waikato and some from Christian assemblies have been convicted. It seemed to be in a rash of them in the 80s and 90s for fraud. Some of them were sent to prison, including my own brother. TV preachers. How many TV preachers have we seen go down in flames over fraud or relationship issues or something like that? I... I'm a member of Gideon's International. And one of the things we do is go down to Waikaria Prison, take church services down there. And it's, it's brilliant. Two of us go down there and together we run two church services in the morning. In different wings, two different wings of the prison. You know, we get to meet a whole lot of Christians down there. We really do. Which is sad, really especially considering that most of them are in either the fraud or the sex offenders' wings. We meet a whole lot of Christians down there. Trust me, bad things happen in the church as well as everywhere else. And this is the reason that we have to consider. None of us is perfect. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, 
And every time I see something like that going down, I just think, there but for the grace of God, go I. Satan will do and is doing his utmost to send me and you down one of those roads so he can destroy our testimony. And if you think it can't happen to you, then listen to this. The Bible says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. That includes you and me. And 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So we have some guiding principles then. Firstly, we need to watch our company. 1 Corinthians, it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I've seen that many times. Secondly, we need to do everything to the glory of God. I'm just trying to edit this a little bit because we're running out of time. In First um, Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 it says, Therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church. See, it might be fine for me to do something between me and the Lord. It might be fine. But if there's anyone else around or involved, then the main question is not, is it fine for me to do it, but how will it help or hinder them? That's the overriding question. If it will help them, that's great. If it might hinder them, don't do it. Just don't do it. We'll go to the commitment. I'd like us all just to bow our heads now and just spend a few seconds in prayer silently. Just confess to the Lord the sin that so easily ensnares you, be it drink, pride, possessions, spirit of superiority, critical spirit, whatever it is, you know your heart. Just be honest before God right now. Seek his forgiveness. Seek his help to change and move on, a new creature. None of us deserves anything. We're all just sinners saved by grace, or else we're just sinners. And if it's true that you haven't yet asked Jesus to save you, then you need to get that sorted. One thing I learned in the police is that you just don't know what's around the corner. Death can claim you anywhere, at any time, at any age. You need to be ready. I've picked up bodies from infant cot deaths to old men and every age in between. From homes, from streams, from lakes, from the bush, from car crashes, from plane crashes, all sorts of places. And almost all of them had the same thing in common. They didn't expect to die that day. But they did. And I doubt that many of them were ready. And my question today is, are you? Talk to Jesus. Bow our heads. Father, as we come to the end of this time together, we just thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts with your people. We pray that you will touch the hearts of every one of us here. 
that you will motivate those of us who belong to you to examine our testimony, our lives, to make sure it stands up under your scrutiny and the scrutiny of those around about us because we know that they're watching. Help us to live as those, help us to live the lives that you would have us to live. Help us to be honest and upright before you, to walk with you as Noah did before the flood. And if we don't know you as our Saviour, Lord, we just pray that you'll impress on our hearts the need to get to know you right now, to get the question of our sin dealt with, to get the question of our eternal salvation dealt with right now. We just come to you now in prayer and we give you thanks for being the great God and Saviour that you are. We thank you and go with you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.